Good morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn to um, the book of Luke, and particularly Luke chapter 19. Um, my name's Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church. It's my privilege um, to be leading, leading the team. Um, this morning um, and this evening's preach are going to be different. So I'm preaching in the morning about um, uh, money and possessions, and uh, Alid is preaching in the evening about God. But it's a bit late now. It's really rude if you get up and say, I'll oh, forget that. I'm going to go this evening and I'll, I'll come back this evening. So you're going to have to stay now and listen to me um, for the next 35 minutes. So um, brilliant. Have any of you gentlemen got your wallets with you? Any of you ladies got your purses with you? Yeah? Wave them in the air a little bit. You've never done that in a church meeting before, have you? No? It's not got a lot of relevance to it, but it's good. Just wave them around. I've got mine with me here. So I want to talk about that a little bit later. So this morning um, I'm going to be talking about when Jesus met Zacchaeus. Have any of you heard the story of Zacchaeus? Yes, some of you know the sort of general gist of it. If you've been in Sunday school class, you'll have definitely heard it three or four times, no doubt. Um, we're going to we're going to start we're going to start there. We're going to start by spending maybe about 15 minutes. We're going to read the story. Um, I'm going to unpack it for you a little bit. Hopefully there'll be some fresh stuff in there that you won't have seen or won't have heard of before. Um, And then I just want to emphasize three particular things to do with money and possessions that um, I felt very provoked um, to open up to you. Now, I must admit, as I started looking at this subject, or as I, I, I started going towards preparing for this subject, I felt quite confident. Because, you know, for 20 years now, um, I've, been giving, I've been giving regularly to the church. Um, I, I've, I've always done it. My mum and dad sort of trained me to do that. So even when I had pocket money, I, I used to tithe my pocket money. That was 10% of what I was getting. Um, I, I used to tithe that. And then when I started work at um, Morrison's, I, I did the same thing then as a teenager. And then as I worked at different building contractors, to be honest, and I earned more money, all I did was I just kept doing what I'd always, always been doing. It's, it's something that I have done um, regularly. And uh, I, I, guess, I guess now myself and Chloe have been married for 14 years. Doesn't she look happy? <laughs> She looks happy now. She looks happy now. We've been married for... Oh, it's our wedding anniversary last week. Anyway. Yes, I did remember. <laughs> Just. Um, and anyway, what was I talking about? Oh, and um, so, since we've been married, to be honest, we've, we've always given above a tithe in, in what we're doing. It's just, how, it's just how we've operated. But I must admit, as I started looking at this, I've, I must admit, I do feel uncomfortable again. Do you know what I mean? It's, I, found, I found again God provoking me. And I, you know, I don't know if any of you ever feel like this. When you get a gift day coming round, do you have that sort of slight sinking feeling in your heart? You know you should be generous and you should be, you should be cheerful. The Bible's awful, isn't it? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's really rub your face in it. Not only do you need to give, you've got to be cheerful when you're doing it. Um, it's, it's a really provoking thing. And so I, I, I found this challenging. And I'm going to get to a bit in the preach where I'm going to be honest with you and say, I don't know what to do with this, but it is in the Bible, so I'm going to tell you about it. So there's going to be a bit in there. And I, I, I'm still trying to process how, how to handle it. But let's, let's look firstly at when Jesus met Zacchaeus and we'll see um, how, we, how we get on. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. 
And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down, and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Let's just pray. Lord, I just ask you, would you come and do your work today through the word? I pray, I pray, Father, would our, I pray, Lord, would you open our hearts? And would you, Holy Spirit, anoint the word as it is preached, that it would be powerful and effective? Why don't you just say, you can say it under your breath, but why don't you just say it under your breath, Lord, my heart is open to you today. Come and have your way. I want to hear your word afresh. Any preconceived ideas or feelings, I put them to one side. I want us to understand your truth afresh today. Amen. So I'm going to spend about 15 minutes working my way through the passage, and then I'm going to unpack three particular emphases that I would um, uh, like to highlight to you. And I know for some of you that you just feel uncomfortable even sat here now. You felt quite happy until I said I was going to talk about money. And now you, you're feeling a bit uncomfortable. I, I just want to put you at ease and say, hey, doesn't matter about the people around you. Actually, doesn't matter about me. It's, it's an interaction between you and the Word of God and what God wants to do in your hearts. I'm so pleased we've taken the offering now. Got it all out of the way. Put it to one side so we can just look at the Word of God. And then you can take it away and think about it and pray about it. And in the peace of your own home and your own walk with God, decide what you want to do with what we've read today. So let's just work our way um, through this passage. So Jesus entered Jericho and he is just passing through. He's on his way up to Jerusalem. He's about actually about a week away from the crucifixion. So this is, this is a big moment for Jesus. And he was aware of where he was going. He was aware of where it was going to end up. He'd already said on three different occasions to his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to die. So this would not have been a comfortable point, I don't think, for Jesus. I would imagine there would have been a whole load of different emotions, things, things going on in his mind as he entered um, Jericho. So although he had the crowds, and although everyone was really, really happy to see him, he must have had a sense or a feeling that actually within a week this was all going to spin around very, very um, quickly. 
And there's a man he meets, we see in verses 2 and 3, called Zacchaeus. And it tells us a few things about Zacchaeus here. It says that he was a chief tax collector um, and that he had great wealth. If you were a tax collector in that day, it meant that you were, you were working for the Romans. You were, ta- you were collecting tax or duty on the Romans' behalf. So Zacchaeus was a Jewish man, and he was, ta- he was collecting tax from other Jewish people for the Roman occupying forces to be given to Caesar. He was not a popular man. He would have, he would have collected uh, tax from the local produce that was grown around Jericho, and uh, Jericho was very profitable because it had, I think that you pronounce it, balsam trees. They had some sort of um, sap or something that was used in medicine, which was very expensive, so there would have been a lot of duty on that. And it was also a trade route, so you'd have had a lot of merchants going through. So when it says Zacchaeus was a wealthy tax collector, he, he would have been doing pretty well in Jericho. Jericho was also the winter capital, so Herod spent his winters in Jericho, and he was having his palace rebuilt and remodeled, and various other things were going on. So this would have been a hive of activity. Government would have run there for certainly a few months of the year, because that's where Herod lived. So, so Zacchaeus was certainly a man of means. He was um, quite high up in the sort of authority structure, the governmental structure. He would have had quite a lot of responsibility. But in spite of all that, Zacchaeus would have been relationally poor. He would have been an outcast from sort of mainstream Jewish life. If he was trying to reach God through the Jewish religion, he was a million miles away from being able to do that. He was a long way. He, he, he was on the outside. Pharisees, tax collectors, they do not go together. They're sort of the religious elite of their day. But we also know from this story that Zacchaeus was hungry to meet with this Jesus. I don't know, maybe he'd heard about the parable he told about the Pharisee and the tax collector and how the Pharisee had marched up to the front of the temple and was really, really confident of his access to God, whereas the tax collector had stood right at the back and said, I'm just a dirty, rotten sinner. I shouldn't even be here. And Jesus said on the back of that parable, he said, actually, it was the tax collector who went back right with God, not the Pharisee. Maybe he'd heard that, that and thought, oh, maybe there's hope for me. Or more, maybe he'd heard the parable of the prodigal son. And he thought, do you know what I mean? I can relate with the prodigal son. Or maybe he heard, he'd heard the story of how the sinful woman who had lived an immoral lifestyle came up when Jesus was reclining at a table and broke an alabaster jar all over his feet. And Jesus accepted her and even forgave her sin. Right in the middle of all these parables. Maybe Zacchaeus had heard some of these parables, some of these incidents, and thought, maybe there is hope for me. But he was hungry to meet with Jesus. So hungry that he ran on ahead of the the crowd. He climbed up a sycamore tree in order to be able to see Jesus, just to see him. I wonder how many government officials you know that would firstly run and then climb a tree just to get the best view. You don't do that, do you? I'm looking at some of you, and you're quite, you know, 
well-to-do, you're established men and women, and I'm trying to imagine whether I could think of you running and then climbing a tree. It's, it's something a child does, isn't it? Or maybe a teenager at a push. But, but, but Zacchaeus is so hungry just to catch a glimpse of this Jesus that he'd heard about that he was willing to sort of be a bit undignified. He was willing to make himself look a bit stupid. You know, climb a tree and ju- just to catch a glimpse. Just, just wonder how hungry are you for him? How hungry are you to meet with Jesus? What, what will you go? You know, he ha- he had to push through the crowds. Oh, there's a crowd. How many of you, if you see a queue, think, "Oh, I'll come back later." He he pushed through the crowds. He was unpopular. He would have been turned away. He was a tax collector. What? Why would Jesus want? But he he was hungry to meet with Jesus. How hungry are you to meet with Jesus? And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I, I don't know, I wonder what Zacchaeus thought, you know, right up in a tree, looking down, and Jesus stops, and he thinks, wow, I picked a good seat. But then he looks up, and he says to him, Zacchaeus, he knows his name. I mean, how on earth did he know his name? I think Jesus had a word of knowledge. He, 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 he knew. He knew this was Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to stay at your house today. And it's interesting how the supernatural opened an opportunity for ministry. And it wasn't in a church. It wasn't in the synagogue. Jesus was just on a journey. Jesus was just going to Jerusalem but he had enough time, he had, he, he, he had made enough space, he was open enough to hear the Holy Spirit prompting him, inviting Zacchaeus, invite Zacchaeus down. And when they, no, I'm jumping ahead. So he hurried and he came down and received him joyfully. I mean, I can half imagine Zacchaeus nearly tumbling out of the tree Jesus has stopped and he's coming to my house for tea. Like, you know, as he hurries his way down, full of joy. Oh, I'm going to say it again, you know. Gospel, joy, they go together like um, fish and chips. Yes, that's right. Zacchaeus, he received joy. He was it's joy. Jesus is interested in me. That that causes a bit of joy. It causes a bit of a smile. Do you know he's interested in you? That he knows you by name. That he cares about you. But when they saw it, they grumbled. He's gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. You know, we know, don't we, Jesus is a friend of sinners. And he still is. Do you know why they grumbled? They, they grumbled because they didn't think Jesus should have gone there. The, the, they're right. Jesus shouldn't have gone there. But actually, Jesus shouldn't visit any of our homes. None of us are, are worthy 
they in their hearts were judging Zacchaeus. They were thinking, look, if, if, if Jesus is going to go anywhere, he should come to my house. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than that tax collector. That's, in reality, that is what they were thinking. If, if only Jesus knew what a swindler and a thief Zacchaeus was, he, he wouldn't have gone there. He'd have come to my house. You know, I pray regularly and I, I, I tithe to the temple treasury and I visit Jerusalem three times a year. I'm, I'm, a, good, I'm a good Jewish person. Zacchaeus doesn't do any of that, but Jesus chooses Zacchaeus to go. grace that's grace Zacchaeus, do you know Zacchaeus was valuable to God Zacchaeus is created in his image Zacchaeus is crowned with glory and honour you know you've heard, you've heard me say this before but you do know that we don't get our value from what we do we, 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 don't, we don't get our value by what we achieve, but do you know what? You don't lose your value by what you do either. You, you, can't, you can't lose your value by what you do either. Zacchaeus' bad actions didn't make him less valuable to God. Just as your good actions don't make you more valuable to God. It's all of grace. Jesus knew Zacchaeus by name. He cared about him as an individual. He knows you by name. He cares about you as an individual. We love grace, don't we? Come on, let's be honest. We love grace when we're singing about it in relation to us. But there are moments when we see God's grace in action, and and it's a bit offensive. Do you know what? Jesus loves bankers as much as he loves nurses. Jesus loves people who work for payday lending companies as much as he loves teachers. Because they're created in his image. They're crowned with glory and honour because God loves people. It's not about what we do. It's about who we are and what God has done in us. Now you know I'm not condoning what they do necessarily. But as people, we can be, the fact we're in a modern church with guitars does not mean that we aren't at risk of being judgmental. In actual fact, if we think we're more secure, we're probably more likely to be judgmental. Then we get to the crux of it, I better fly through this. And in verses 8 and 9, it says this, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Now, we're not party to the conversation that Jesus had with Zacchaeus. We don't know what he said, but we do know the result. And in actual fact, you may find the result quite offensive. This isn't salvation by works. Zacchaeus hasn't earned his way into heaven. 
but he has responded in his heart to Christ and the overflow of repentance is seen in his desire to put things right in incredible generosity. I mean, it's interesting to note Zacchaeus doesn't say, I'm going to give away half my salary. He says, I'm going to give away half my possessions. I'm going to give half of it away to the poor and then if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to repay four times the amount. Now, that four times isn't a random thing. It comes from the Old Testament the law of Moses, where it says that if someone stole a sheep, you should give four sheep back if they're caught. So in a sense, the kiss said, I'm going to restore four times the amount if I have stolen from anyone. I mean, this is in stark contrast to the rich young man. Do you remember about a month ago, we were looking at discipleship and the rich young man who went away sad, he started so well, but then he went away sad. Jesus proclaims salvation on the back of what Zacchaeus says he's going to do with his money and possessions. He, he doesn't proclaim salvation on the fact of the words in a sense of, he says, I believe in you, Jesus. No, he does it on the back of his actions, his desire to give away money. Randy Alcorn, who, who wrote a book called Money, Possessions and Eternity which may be at the back, Sue. If it's not at the back, it should be on order and will come through soon. Well worth a read. He says this, Jesus judged the reality of this man's salvation based on his willingness, no, his cheerful eagerness to part with his money for the glory of God and for the good of others. I mean, it's quite powerful, isn't it? It's provoking. I find the story of Jesus meeting Zacchaeus quite a challenging story to any of you. That heart change, that provocation. I want to just emphasize three things to you that come from this passage. The first one is this. You need a conversion of your heart and your wallet should come up behind me. I know many of you would prefer it if we kept faith and money separate. The problem is that that isn't what the Bible does and it doesn't seem to be what Jesus does either. Salvation is proclaimed on, this, on the back of this fruit. On the back of Zacchaeus saying what he will do Jesus proclaims salvation has come to this man, to this household. Jesus has no problem of linking money and salvation. We see it right the way through Luke. In Luke chapter 12, we hear about the rich, foolish farmer. We're going to touch on that in a little bit. Um, In Luke 16, we come across the rich man and Lazarus. In Luke 18, we touched on it a month ago, the rich young ruler. In Luke 19, Zacchaeus. In Luke 21, Jesus watching the widow and the rich man at the temple putting money into the offering bucket. In Luke chapter 22, Judas betrays Jesus for money. Jesus doesn't have any problem of talking about eternal things and money all linked together because because they're, they're important. But it isn't just Jesus, although Jesus probably is enough, isn't he? We don't really need to go beyond what Jesus does. But if you go to John the Baptist in Luke 3, verses 7 to 14... 
There's whole crowds coming out to hear John the Baptist, a really diverse crowd. They all come out. He's out by the River Jordan, and he starts speaking to them. And he says, repent and be baptized, because the kingdom of heaven is near. And they say to him, well, John, what do we need to do? What does repentance look like for me? So he says to the crowds, well, for you, repentance looks like, if you've got two tunics, give one to someone who hasn't got one. And if you've got lots, if you've got lots of food, well, share it with someone who hasn't got any food. That's the crowds. To tax collectors, he says this, don't charge more than you're authorised to. He doesn't tell them to stop being tax collectors. He just says, look, don't overcharge them. To soldiers, what does he say? He doesn't tell them to stop being soldiers. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say you should leave the Roman army. What he does say is you're not to extort money by threats and false accusation. So in all three of these groups, John the Baptist is very clear. He's talking about spiritual things, but repentance on the ground actually affects people's income. It affects their possessions. It affects what they do with the physical things around them. Martin Luther said this, that for each of us, there must not only be the conversion of the heart and mind, but also the conversion of the purse. What starts here, in what we hear, and works down to our hearts here, at some point will reach our back pocket, where our wallets are as well. I won't get this quote exactly right, but... um, but I will try and get it right. Uh, someone said, and I can't remember who it was, said that our credit cards and our debit cards are theological things. They tell us what we worship. They tell us where our heart is. What is it that we really invest into? Second thing is that we need to think differently about money and possessions. It sort of flows out of this. Okay, you guys look so cheerful. I'm sure it's because you're being provoked. We need to think differently, secondly, about money and possessions. You know, again, sort of things that we'll have said from here before. Come on, church. We are a Bible-believing church. We believe the whole Bible, not just the bits that we like. Amen? Yeah, some of you are there. You're with me. Let's have a quick look at a couple of passages in Luke, which and these are the bits I just don't know quite what to do with. So you up for that? So if you've got two fingers and a Bible, okay, one finger in Luke chapter 12 and the other finger in Luke chapter 21. We're going to start in Luke 21, by the way. So Luke chapter 21 and Luke chapter 12. We need to think differently about money and possessions. So Luke chapter 21, verse 1. So Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. This is at the temple. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put, more, it has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance... But she, out of her poverty, put all she had to live on. 
So just bear this in mind, think about it. I want, to, I want you to imagine, actually, that you're all financial consultants. Okay? So you've got this widow who's coming to you, and she's about to tell you what she's going to do. She's going to put the last two pounds she's got, which she's going to live on, into the offering box. What would you tell her to do? Okay, just hold that for a sort. Let's now turn to Luke chapter 12. This is a story, or this is a parable of a rich farmer. So it's Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That's basically, covetousness is wanting things that aren't yours. Getting caught up, wanting possessions that you do not have. In a sense, it's a form of idolatry, thinking, if I just have that, I'll be happy, I'll be content. That's what covetousness is. So Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Actually, probably one of the most apt verses for this generation, in the generation we live in. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I'll let that sink in for a little bit. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So, Mr. Mrs. Financial Consultant, I want you to imagine, maybe just briefly turn to the person next to you. What would you tell the poor widow to do? And what would you tell the rich farmer to do? Who, on the surface, seems to be a very wise young man, doesn't he? Seems to be a very good idea, you know, you're, anyway. I mean, quickly, just turn to the person next to you. Tell them what do you reckon you'd advise them to do. So the poor widow, she puts her last two offering, her last two copper coins, equivalent probably to about two pounds in today's money, into the offering bucket. There's no welfare state. There's, I, I have no idea where this poor widow will get her next meal from. But she's so provoked in a devotion to God that she willingly puts in the very last of what she has get, got in there as an act of worship. I'm so pleased the offering's already gone round. Because I don't know pastorally what I would say to someone if they came and asked me advice on what they should do with their last two pounds. 
And I think I wouldn't recommend what she did. Being honest. I'd really, I'd. But Jesus is watching. He's not only watching what she's putting in the offering, he's close enough to see two copper coins. He's doing a running commentary on it. And he invites his disciples over to join him so he can have a discussion. But Jesus doesn't stop her. He doesn't say that you've done the wrong thing. What about the rich, the rich farmer? There's nothing in the story to say that he was dishonest. There's nothing to say that he exploited others. He was probably a good Jewish guy who attended the synagogue weekly, visited the temple three times a year, tithed and prayed like most Jews did. He was, looks like a hard-working farmer, would you agree? I mean, he seems to be. He's going to tear down his barns. He's certainly not a fool resting on his laurels in that sense. He's really putting his back into it. He's going to build a big new barn to take all the extra crops that God has blessed him with. Isn't he just preparing for retirement? Isn't he just being shrewd, you know, wise? Yet, Jesus calls the widow eternally wise and he calls the rich farmer an eternal fool because he invested into this life and was not rich toward God I find it provoking I don't know if Jesus were delivering this preach and I was down there I would I've been squirming when I've been preparing to be honest because I don't know what to do with it God knows the heart of the widow and the farmer and sees through the eyes of eternity. He elevates the poor woman as eternally wise and the rich farmer as eternally foolish. And I think there, church, there is a danger for us that we come to Christ, but when it comes to money and possessions, our minds remain pretty much untransformed. We think just the way our neighbours do on our left and our right and our opposite. Okay, we pop a little bit in the offering bucket, or we might even tithe. But in the fundamental of how we view money and possessions, we don't view it any differently to how we did before. We do need to view money and possessions through an eternal lens. We need to have our minds renewed. We need to tear down strongholds in our thinking that stand contrary to what God says and renew our minds so that we can be courageous, so we can be generous, so we can be joyful in our use of money and possessions. We need to think differently about money and possessions. And then thirdly, and you might, you might, you might want to throw something at me when I say this, so I'm going to duck behind the lectern in a minute, okay? You've been entrusted with great resources. You have been entrusted with great resources. Resources. I am pretty much confident I can say that for every single one of you here. Now, I know in the day-to-day cut and thrust of life, you can always feel like you don't quite have enough. That you're always 
a tenner short and running a bit late. But let me just illustrate something to you. A person who is living off the national living wage, that's £7.80 an hour, will earn about £15,000 a year. Over their working life, without any other benefits, without any pension, about £700,000 will go through their hands. Now, I know an awful lot of it will go on things like rent and mortgage and food and buying kids' shoes and paying the gas and electricity. I know all of that, and I know things are tight. I don't think there'll be anyone here, probably, or very few here who say, yeah, absolutely, we're fine. But over your working life, over £700,000, based on £15,000 a year. That's a lot of money, isn't it? That you, you get to manage, you get to steward. If you are, if you are earning double that, so say £30,000 a year, household income, that's £1.4 million over the course of your working life. If, if it's £45,000 for your household, that's 2.1 million pounds will go through your bank account over the course of your working life. That's, that's great riches, isn't it? I think it is. What are you doing with what God has entrusted to you? Remember, you're a steward of these resources. They aren't yours. You're not taking any of it with you. You know, you can try and do a bit of a pharaoh trick and load up your pyramid with a whole load, whole, load, whole load of gold, but he goes on and the gold stays for grave robbers. You, you come in with nothing and you leave with nothing. You are left here to steward what God has given you. And God has blessed every single one of us with great resources. Let me just ask you a question, a few questions. Where did it all go? What did you spend it on? How much did you invest in supporting mission, discipleship, caring for the poor? They did a, um, they, they, uh, again, I won't get this quite right, but I read it only yesterday. They did a study of someone who was earning 30,000 pounds, I think, and they, they did a whole study of people, and they said, how much money do you need to live comfortably? And they said 40,000. They did the same question to someone who was earning 70,000 pounds. Guess what they said? And someone who was earning 150,000 pounds said they needed a quarter of a million. Uh, don't be judgmental. Although I did line you up for that one a little bit. Where did it all go? What did you spend it on? What has been accomplished for eternity through the resources that you have been blessed with? I know this is provoking. It's the sort of real stuff of life, isn't it? I bet most of you are thinking, I knew I should have gone to the evening meeting. The best way, God's way of investing into eternity is giving to the local church. That's the reality of it. 
That's what the Bible describes. You can give to other things as well. But the overwhelming weight of Scripture says you need to give where you're being fed. And so if you call this church home, the Bible would encourage you to give cheerfully and generously and abundantly with joy, knowing that as you give to the church, it's actually an act of worship to God. And you're investing not only for this life, but for the life to come. That, that's the reality of it. That as you give to kings, or if you're a member of St. Helens or Battle Baptist or wherever you may be a part of, that's where you should give. In the Old Testament, they had an expectation that they would give 10%. They would give the first fruits. It's, 10% is quite a lot, isn't it? For every £10 you earn, you'll give a pound into the temple treasury. Wow, that's, that's a big part. I thought the tax men were tough. In the New Covenant, there's no stipulations on an amount. There's no percentage ever mentioned anywhere. But when we're told to give, we're told to give generously and abundantly and with joy and in proportion to what God has given you. I reckon the New Testament writers had an expectation in excess of 10%. That's what I reckon they had. Over the course of a lifetime, a working life, someone is on the living wage, if they were able to, and I know it would be really tough, a real step of faith, they'd give, do you know, £70,000 to the church. That's a lot of money, isn't it? A household earning 50000 a year, if they tithed, they'd give quarter of a million pounds. You imagine all the kingdom stuff that could go on. Do you know, no one's looking at me now, everyone's looking for one. Do you know that everything God's going to call us to do as a church He's provided the finance for it in your pockets. Everything. You've been entrusted with great resources. You really have. And that's not to say that it isn't hard, that life isn't tough. Just as I close, I just want to finish by just make it, mentioning a word about debt. Debt robs us of the ability to serve God effectively with the resources he's given us. Debt is something that is crippling. And I know that for some of you, you're in debt just because you're trying to pay the gas and electric bill. That's, that's, that's the situation. But I also know some of you that are in debt because you just want more stuff that you're living a little bit like the rich farmer who's investing an awful lot into this world 
And because of that, you're getting yourselves caught up with debt. We live in a society, don't we, that easy credit, that the whole advertisement thing is if you want it, we'll buy it now. Rather than save up and get it next year, just buy it now and you can pay for it over the next three or four years. It's, it's, it's feeding into a covetousness of that if I just have that next thing, I, I will be satisfied. And there is a satisfaction, but it's only momentary. Because as soon as it lands on your doorstep, you're thinking about the next thing you're going to buy. Jesus satisfies. A relationship with him satisfies. Not the accumulation of possessions. Over the last couple of years, we've run the Cap Money course. It's just to help you, to give you the skills to be able to budget and plan and use your money well. You don't need to be in debt to go on it. It just helps you to handle your money effectively. But if you are in debt, and you feel that's how you've been as long as you can remember, just paying off one credit card bill after the next, I would really encourage you to consider going on this course. It's only three weeks long, but it will equip you to handle your money, money and possessions much more effectively so that you can use them for the glory of God rather than lining the credit card company's pockets. If you want to find out more about the CAP course, why don't you email Natalie, Natalie Williams or go to the information desk and just mention it at the information desk that you'd like to find out more about the CAP money course and we can send you some details. If there are enough of you here that would like to do it, we'll run one either this term or early next term in order to help you. But I know there's a number of people in the church who have been so blessed by it. Why don't we stand on our feet? I want to recommend two books to you, Money, Possessions and Eternity by Randy Alcorn and The Money Secret by Rob Parsons. Both those books can be ordered today at the bookstall if you'd like them. Why just close our eyes? Lord Jesus, I, I just want to thank you that you have been so generous to us. You've held nothing back from us. You, you've given it all. You've given it absolutely all. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that when we meet with you, the change is radical. Thank you for Zacchaeus. It, it, it wasn't, it wasn't he, he was trained into that change. He, he met with Jesus and his heart changed. There's something different going on in the inside. Jesus, we want to say thank you. Every single one of us wants to say thank you for our own personal testimony of how we've encountered you and how our lives have been changed and transformed by your grace and your mercy. 
I thank you, Lord. None of us, none of us deserve to have you come and visit our home, but you did. And we were wonderfully, wonderfully saved. Lord Jesus, we say we are yours. Lord, you've got our hearts, you've got our minds, you've got our voices, our hands, our feet. We say we are yours. And Father, I just want to pray for those today who have never given their wallets to you. That it's always been a stronghold, it's always been a battle for them. They've, they've struggled to do it. Lord, I just ask you for an infusion of your grace. I ask you, Lord, they wouldn't respond out of duty or fear or because they think they should. But I ask you as they come and as they study your word, faith will rise and joy will fill their hearts and they will have the faith to step out and follow your promptings and leadings as they give. I ask you for today, Lord, for many fresh adventures in giving to start this morning. Maybe for those who've only given uh, to comic relief or something like that, but th th today they'd make that decision. Actually, I'm, I'm going to give some money next week when the offering goes around. I'm going to give something. Or I might start up a standing order. It, it won't be 10%, but I I'll do something. Lord, I ask you for faith to rise in hearts. I pray for joy to rise with it as well. Lord, I ask you more and more as a church we would live lives with an eternal perspective. Oh God, would you be with us in all these things? I ask that for your precious name, Lord Jesus. We are so grateful to you for the riches of your mercy. We say as a church together, amen. Excellent, thank you guys. I know it's been warm this morning. Um, excellent, hang around, have a coffee. Enjoy hanging out together. And God bless you as you go and as your salt and light in your work situations and family situations. Excellent.